This podcast takes you into the rarely discussed realm of the personal decisions leaders have taken that have influenced their business decisions and developed them into the leaders they are today. The refreshingly honest experiences of those who have been very successful provide an insight into the challenges they faced, the successes they achieved, and the people who influenced them along their journey. Here's our host, Mark Silvera. Welcome to Business Made Personal. This podcast is brought to you by the insurance industry's leading education and events provider, ANZIF, via their Careers in Insurance initiative. I'm Mark Silvera. So I have with me today, Sarah Lyons. Sarah is the CEO of Gallagher Broking in Australia and Asia. After more than 20 years in the insurance industry, Sarah, by her own admission, loves the fact that you can take something that people perceive as being grey and boring and turn their thinking on its head. It's even better, she says, when you can lead and nurture a high-performing team to take it to the next level and create an experience for the customer that is highly differentiated and transformational. Welcome to Business Made Personal, Sarah. Thank you very much for having me. Sarah, talk to me a little bit about your time prior to insurance. We had a chat offline. You grew up in a number of different places. I'm really interested to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, so my dad was in insurance, and so we moved around a lot as as a family. So prior to well, the age of 15, I'd been in five different schools, and I'd lived in England, Scotland, England, Wales, Ireland, and back to England. That's fantastic. So from a young person's perspective, was that a challenging to do? In some aspects, yes, but it makes you very resilient. You are the perpetual new kid on the block. So you get used to making new friends relatively quickly. So I think it does shape you as an individual. But I always knew that I had the absolute support of my family. So wherever we went together, my sister was 17 months older than me. So it was always good having somebody alongside you as you joined a new school. But, you know, as kids, you make friends very easily. You just have to change your accent a little bit as you move from England to Scotland, Scotland to England and what have you. But apart from that, I think it helped shape me as an individual. From a parenting perspective, both your folks work or just the one of them? How did that work? Both my parents worked. So naturally, we followed my dad as my dad was promoted, got bigger jobs. We moved to a different location and my mum changed her jobs in between. When, when me and my sister were very young, she worked part time. And then when we became teenagers, went to high school, she was back full time working. And then your working life, when did that start? So I left school. So in the UK, it's slightly different. You have O-levels and A-levels. So O-levels, you're 16. So I left school at the end of my O-levels. I then started working full-time. I carried on my studies at BTEC National in Business and Finance at night school. I then did my insurance exams, which are the equivalent of a degree. And I've also done an MBA at night school. Did a reason you chose to continue your education pathway after hours, was that something you felt that was something you had to do or was it something you wanted to do? By two years of doing an O-levels, I moved in between that those two years from a Welsh syllabus to an English syllabus. So I went from a school in Wales and then to a school for my last year before my exams in, in England. So basically, I had to do the equivalent of two years study within a two-term period. So it was a bit more challenging to go from a syllabus which was completely different in one location to learn something different in another. And so it was at the end of that, I thought, that's not the school for me. So I then decided I would do do things at night. Now, I always wanted to be able to have the equivalent of a degree, even though I didn't actually go to university. So by doing that at night, it helped me be able to achieve that. And in the UK, 
when I started to work for an insurance company, it was in my contract that I had to take and successfully pass my associate of the Chartered Insurance Institute exams, which is the equivalent of a degree. So that was conditional on, on my my working. And then as part of my development in one of the companies I was working at, I was offered to do a company-sponsored MBA. So I did that and it helped broaden my thinking as an individual and as a leader. So, you know, all credit to the company I worked at for giving me some time because it used to be on a Thursday at four o'clock till 9.30, two years, and then you did your dissertation. Okay, that's interesting. So very, very different to the way it operates over there to how it operates here. I wanted to ask you about that start in your working career. Did you have people who were major influences for you during your, your sort of formative business career? Certainly my dad and also my grandfather. They both taught me that hard work pays off, that to look after those that are around you and instilled doing your part as part of my work ethic. But that always encouraged me to give things a go, to believe in yourself and believe that anything was possible and to do your very best to become that person that people want to engage with and make sure that you've got a good support network around you. So I learned my work ethic from both my dad and his dad as well. I think, well, certainly people of our generation have actually, that's quite common where you do mirror some of your parents' traits. These days, it appears to be a little different where there's a possible view that younger people coming in may well have seven careers over their working life. I just wanted to get your comment in terms of what you're seeing in terms of your global experience as far as the younger demographic coming into the industry these days. I think it's certainly different from when I was growing up and when I started my career because my generation was about stability. You didn't move around as much. Yes, you had the opportunities to be promoted in some of the organizations that you worked at, but you had that loyalty, that drive, that passion to be able to work for that company. My dad only ever worked for two organizations. And so I look back on that and then so some of that rubbed off on me. Am I seeing things different now? Yes. Yes, we are. There is there's a lot more different opportunities in terms of jobs than when I was starting my career. There is also a different drive and ambition in the younger generation than there was in mine. Mine was much more, like I say, about that stability, that providing for your family. But I think now there's the flexibility, the learning different things. I think for me as an organization, I've got to find ways to be able to keep the creativity, keep the learning alive and provide those opportunities for the next generation. Their desire to have it a bit quicker than when I started my career is pretty evident. And so I think there's a responsibility as employers to find the opportunities to create new roles career opportunities and have those conversations so the younger generation can see what's in front of them. And by having that line of sight, I think we get greater loyalty and greater time served within the organisation. And do you think as a result of that, we've changed in terms of, well, we have to change how we manage people? Change is a good thing. I think as an organisation, that continuous learning is a great thing to do because you don't want to stale as an organisation. So you have to find ways that help people learn and develop. And everybody thinks differently. Everybody learns differently. So it's not a one size fits all. And I think for some, they want to be able to try new things. So as well as fulfilling their aspirations to do their job, if they can be involved in things like projects, where it it takes them down a slightly different path, but enables them to learn a new skill set, they're the things that you've got to find those opportunities. And that's where you've got to help people. I'm a visual person. I need to see things. Other people like to read. 
So you've got to be able to manage that multitude of different ways of learning. So tell me how someone from Wales, London, Ireland, London, Wales ended up in Australia, Felicera. I got a call from a headhunter that said, haven't you always wanted to work in Australia? And I'll be honest with you, my answer was no. Um, my knowledge of Australia was um, my parents' British and Irish Lions tour, Home and Away and Neighbours, and that was it. The insurance board is a very small community, so I got asked to go and meet somebody for coffee because they were across in the UK. And that half-hour coffee turned into a three-hour chat. I then met a, a number of people, and I was offered the role. And I thought, why not? So I went home that night and said to Simon, my partner, I've just been offered a job in Australia. Shall we go? So he's like, sure. So we turned up sight unseen, having never been to Australia before and not looked back. Talk to me about that. So you come over to Australia. You really didn't initially didn't want to come here. But then when you've heard of the opportunity, you've obviously got excited about it. Were there challenges moving to Australia that you didn't expect to face? Not really, because during my career, I'd moved to Southern Ireland. So I'd already worked away from the UK and come back. Simon had worked in Denmark during his career and come back. It wasn't a concern about moving to a new country apart from the fact it is the other side of the world. Um, and my dad said to me, you know, you've got to live your life for yourself. And if he'd been offered op- this opportunity when he was my age, then he would have taken that. So it was more excitement than concern. Every time you move to a different country, there is different challenges in terms of interpretation. So a description of something from an insurance world in Australia means something different in the UK, or it has a different phrase. But that was it. You know, obviously the weather's a lot better than the UK, but Looking back, I think it was much more of the challenge of the role is the thing that interested me the most. It wasn't the location. But now having come to Australia, I absolutely love it. And look, you don't know what the future holds, but because it's such a dynamic environment over here, it's a great place to be part of because you're developing a whole range of things. And I know some of the things that you've been doing at Gallagher, which has been you know, quite groundbreaking in a lot of, in a lot of respects. I want to go back to 2018, where Insurance Business reported, and I quote, Lyons is the only female CEO of a major international broker in Australia and is responsible for a national team of 900 staff and a business placing more than 1 billion in GWP, end of quote. I want to talk to you about the role of women in insurance. What are you seeing as being the major challenges, Sarah? I'm just going to start that with Historically, I think there was a real challenge of females being in senior positions within the insurance world, and that has shifted. Has it shifted enough? Probably not. But there's a lot more senior people in C-suites in insurance, both in insurance companies and broking here in Australia. I'd say the challenge for females is about confidence. It's not really from a capability perspective. It's about looking at a role and thinking, yes, I can do the majority of that. I'm going to put my hand up for it. It's more about Can we as an organisation, as a society, as an insurance community, can we do a lot more earlier on in people's careers to be able to give them opportunity and bolster their confidence so they want to be able to take those senior positions? That's the bit I think we've got to focus our attention on. That whole work-life balancing, I suppose COVID has sort of tipped that on its head a bit, Laurent. So that whole thing about raising a family, having a career, Have you seen a change in terms of how people are reacting now to that and the impact specifically with more diverse groups? I have. It's much more of a shared responsibility now than the focus really being on females to be able to do the home life aspect. I think that has been sped up as a result of COVID when both parents would have been at home and shared that responsibility. 
now where there's greater flexible working. And I think that from that, there is a lot more that parents are wanting to do to make sure they spend time with their children. As organisations, I think there's always been that work-life balance, but it's always come down to choice. So I choose to work the hours I work. There is flexibility in my role, but it's much more around, I know what it is that I need to do. And this is just what I ask from everybody who works in the organisation. We're all adults. We all know what we need to do. We all know what we need to do to be able to fulfil our responsibility for the company and our clients. How you do that and where you do that and what time you do that, that's kind of more down to the individual. The old nine to five doesn't exist in its entirety. And from an insurance broking perspective, I'm not sure that ever really existed because you're more focused on when a client can see you. So if you want to go and see farmers, you've got to do it in their time. But it means that you might not start first thing in the morning. You might work longer at night. And that works. And now, you know, it's been shown that that works. I think you still need to have a working environment in the office because it's about teamwork, collaboration, culture, learning. You can't get that sitting behind a PC on your own at home. And I think the whole issue around that sort of mental health aspect is now raising its head as well, right? Because we've been doing this for a few years. I mean, you mentioned that, you know, the whole work dynamic has changed, but how are you seeing that impacting what you do from a a CEO type position? From a mental health perspective? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's great now there is a lot more conversations from a mental health perspective, more awareness, more training. So we've got a a range of activities that we do within our organisation, but partly around, it's not just about are you okay and are you okay day. It's about making sure that those around us, the leaders in our business can see signs and actually have the right conversations with people. We make sure that there are mental health days. It's much more about that creating awareness and having the right conversations and then providing the support network, whether that's through your own EAP or whether organisations do more than that. I think that's what it's all about. And as an individual, I really do care about people. So I want to make sure that people have the right conversations, have know that we're a, you know, a supportive organisation. And if they want to talk to somebody, just make sure that they've got the right people to be able to talk to. But I think in Australia in its entirety, there is a lot more conversations going on about mental health awareness, about research. I did a skydive to raise money for Black Dog, which I think is a great organisation because they are looking into research as well as helping people, which is a great thing to do. I'll ask you about the skydiving later. Can you talk me through your role? What is it that you like about your role? Oh, there's lots I like about my role. The best thing for me is about people. Whether that's meeting new people, whether it's clients, prospects, those that want to come and join Gallagher, those that work within Gallagher, or any acquisitions that we look to do. So for me, I get my greatest buzz if I can help make a difference to somebody's career. And what would you say is the most challenging part of what you do, Sarah? It's not so much the challenging part. It's more the, um, I sit in a lot of meetings, like a lot. That's not always the most enjoyment that you get in your role. It comes with the territory, and I get that. I much more prefer being out and about and seeing people. I can certainly relate to that. Talk to me about failures. One of the things about, because you mentioned resilience earlier on in our conversation, and, you know, resilience to me comes about because of things that haven't gone in your favour and you've had to find ways around it. Let's call it a favourite failure that taught you a lot about either yourself or what you needed to do? I'm not sure I have a favourite. I know there has been, there's circumstances where you go, I wish I'd dealt with that differently. 
It might be how you've handled a situation, how you've spoken to somebody, a decision that you may have made. And some of those may have replayed on your mind a number of times. The main thing for me is about learning and doing something differently in the future. I think there's a lot of times where circumstances haven't necessarily gone the way I thought they would do, whether it's results haven't been achieved. The best thing is that you make another decision and move forward. Learn from what you've done, do things a slightly different way and move forward. When I was younger in my career, there would have been more circumstances where I'd question myself as to whether I was good enough, whether I would be caught out one day where somebody thought I was better than I am. I will not certainly not be the only person in their career who've ever gone through that. But, you know, some of that is about building confidence as well as capability and believing in yourself that it doesn't matter if you don't get it right every time. You learn a lot more from those circumstances than if everything went smoothly. Yeah, it's interesting that whole imposter syndrome in terms of how it impacts on people. I think you're 100% right in terms of developing the confidence around it. And particularly if you go back to one of your earlier comments, you know, if you can do most parts of the job, have a go at it. It's those other parts that you may not be good at that, you know, creates the sort of havoc in your mind, let's call it. But the reality, I think, though, is when you are put in a situation where you have to give it a go, you probably are more capable than you think you are, and you'll probably go further than you think you can do. I had a mentor in the UK. It was a a gentleman I worked for for a period of time. He used to push me further than I thought I could go, so he promoted me into jobs. And it was his belief in me and my desire not to let him down that I I surpassed where I thought I could go. And I will ever be thankful for that individual for giving me those opportunities. And I pay that forward now and do the same thing for people who work with me that push them further than they think they can go and then they realise they can actually do it. It's that old sort of saying around, you know, you're either motivated by the desire for success or you're motivated by the fear of failure. I find it very interesting how it works itself into people's subconsciouses and what they actually do. I have interviewed a few people on Business Made Personal who have been on the border of bankruptcy and that's the thing that springboarded them into making sure that they they got up and and made things happen, which I always find that sort of stuff fascinating. I want to talk a little bit about challenges with you, Sarah. If I asked you what's the hardest challenge you've had to overcome, what would your response be? I'd probably say moving from middle management into senior management and give you a bit of context. I moved from England to Southern Ireland while still working for a parent company, which was based in England. So two different cultures. The bulk of my clients would be based in in the UK and the people I worked with were in Southern Ireland. My first time on a board with non-exec directors, and that would have been my greatest challenge. Not only was I in a different country with people I didn't know, I was then elevated to into a job where I had to think differently. I had to influence differently. I had to deliver through other people as opposed to delivery through myself. I had to be more curious around what was going on within the organization. And you had to then be more strategic in where you were going to take it. So I would say that was probably in my career, my most challenging situation I've been in. So how did you actually do it? Because a lot of people would go, well, this is the way I've always operated. This is what I'm doing. What specifically did you do that actually helped you manage that whole dilemma? Well, part of it, to be honest with you, is where you don't really have much of an option because you can't do it all yourself. You have to deliver through people. 
So the first thing was to make sure a, I knew what made the people I was working with tick and how I could get the best out of them, where I'd got gaps in capability, whether that was mine or theirs, and work out what I was going to do to plug it. It was about having conversations with the most senior people in the organization, both in Ireland and also in the UK, to understand expectations. Then having conversations with the chairman and the non-execs about what they expected from me. The best piece of advice I ever got when I was um, going into my first board meeting, it was mention one or two things that were on your paper where you need to expand. One or two things are not included in your board paper and then shut up. Was it easy to do? No, it wasn't actually, no. Um, Because part of it is you want to write everything within your paper and you have to learn to distill it into, you know, the golden nuggets that, that a board need to see, not all the operational stuff. And then you're wanting to be able to explain, but you need to do it in a, in a very concise manner and then learn to stop talking. And that's the hardest part, right? Because you want to be seen to be adding value. You want to be seen to be knowledgeable and, you know, experienced and all the rest of it, right? So sh- shutting up isn't exactly what you – but great advice, right? Yeah, absolutely. Talk to me a little bit about if you were to go back to the younger Sarah Lyons, uh, who's, you know, left school and started night school. What advice would you give her, Sarah? Just give it a go. Don't be scared. You'll be fine. You'll learn things along the way. Just every opportunity you get, give it a go. Do you think you bypassed a few opportunities because you didn't give it a go? I don't think so. I think I could have handled circumstances better. I think I would have taken more opportunities, not in terms of promotions or things like that, but I probably put myself forward for other initiatives that may have cropped up that would help make me more all-rounded earlier on than I did. Another piece of advice I got was it was a marathon, not a sprint. You know, so don't try and rush. You will get there in the end. And when you start to take the pressure off yourself, my career just just absolutely rocketed. But it's that part around making sure you've got the good foundations you understand how things operate, you start to build up that capability and then you know a lot more than you think you do know. So it's probably not that I didn't take opportunities in terms of career opportunities that were offered. I think I sold myself short and I shouldn't have done. I want to ask you, because you didn't start off work life as a CEO, right? You started in different areas and you've moved, let's call it through the ranks. If I asked you for some advice in terms of if you were moving from a position to a higher level, what are the key things you think that people should take into account when they're moving up that sort of, let's call it ladder, for want of a better word? I think part of it is understanding expectations. And I think nowadays it's less about your qualifications and much more around how you can motivate people. So if you can understand what makes people tick, you know how to motivate your team. You're multidimensional in your approach. You change your style to suit the individuals you work for. And if you can use humor and storytelling to motivate, that's what you should do. It's a really interesting comment because I was having this conversation with someone the other day. And, you know, when I first started work, your manager told you to go and do that. And you would say, how high do I need to jump? I think today it's your manager tells you to go and do that. And you go, well, hang on a minute, why am I doing it? So I think the role in terms of management has changed a little bit from being a directional manager to being a coach as opposed to a manager. I would love to find out whether you're seeing that sort of shift or whether you think we've still got a way to go. 
I think we've still got a way to go. Some people become coaches a lot quicker than others. So it's that difference between a manager and a leader. And I wholeheartedly agree with you. It's around explaining what it is we need to get to, the outcome we're looking for, but you're actually explaining not just the what, but more importantly, the why. And you are giving those people in your organization the opportunity to help shape so they have a voice and that voice is heard. It's not to say that I'm the only one with the answers. My solution might not always be the best one, but it's being able to have those conversations with people to be able to go, ultimately, this is what I'm trying to achieve. Let's work together on the best way to get there. But if people can understand that, why? They're a lot more, they buy in a lot more to what it is that you're wanting to achieve. And if you can create a picture in people's mind of what it is that you're trying to do, you'll find a lot more people will choose to follow you. So that bit about coaching, you might give a high level brief, but it's not about following the bouncing ball. It's about thinking for yourself and doing. I think that's the way the organizations have started to shift. So let's talk a little bit more about that, because one of the things that the industry is struggling with at the moment is attraction and retention of talent. What are the sorts of things that you personally believe we should be doing or are doing that is either helping or hindering that process? I think every industry at the moment has a real challenge about attracting and retaining talent. Conversations have got to occur. It's much more than just money. So it's much wider than your package. And it's understanding what, going back to my comment earlier about what motivates people. Some people can't see that they've got a career in the organization. They don't feel that they're valued. So you've got to make sure that the right conversations occur. And this is not just once a year at an annual review. This is frequently throughout the year to make sure from their learning perspective, you know, if we go back to the conversation we had earlier about the next generation, they want to learn quicker. You've got to be able to give them those opportunities. You've got to be able to show them that that they are valued in an organization and that they matter and their voice matters. And yes, you've got to make sure that they've they've got the right compensation to be able to fulfill all, all aspects around it. For individuals, flexibility might be more important than career. You know, you've got to just work it out for that individual to be able to help help achieve that. Coming back to attracting talent, again, it's about being able to articulate what you're looking to do in your organization and where they fit and the difference that they're going to make. I think that's that is really important, you know, in terms of organizations. I've got a couple of final questions for you, Sarah Lyons, CEO of Gallagher Broking, before I let you go. The first one is I have here a magic wand which I'm going to pass over to you. You can now change anything in the insurance industry that you wish to. What would you use your magic wand to do? Right, kind of two things. The first thing is somehow we can crack it that people get to realize what an amazing industry it is. I don't know many people who've chosen to come into insurance, but then again, I don't know many people who choose to leave once they've been in. But it's like we're the best kept secret in terms of an industry. The second thing I'd say is we need to be much more agile. We need to adapt to technology and the insurance industry is just, compared to others, slower. But if I had my magic wand, it's the first. I want to be able to shout from the rooftops what an amazing industry the insurance industry is and the difference that you can make to people and to their business. And the interesting thing about your comment is that it doesn't matter what your background is. You can be a qualified accountant, an engineer, you could be an office cleaner. It really doesn't matter. There's a role that you can play insurance, which is, like you say, really there about helping people. I want to ask you one final question, and that is, what's next for Sarah Lyons? 
Well, I've recently taken on Asia for Gallagher. So I now, um, as well as the Chief Exec of Australia, from the 1st of June, I became the Chief Exec of Australia and Asia. So I've never operated in Asia before. So that's a whole new learning for me. And for somebody who's motivated from that uh, development learning, that that's something that really does interest me. So I have Singapore, Hong Kong, Japan, Taiwan, China, Indonesia, Philippines, and Malaysia to go and visit. Fantastic. And I wish you all the very, very best with it. Hey, Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time to be on Business Made Personal with us and having a chat with us. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for lending us your ears. Please remember to click follow on your podcast app or subscribe at bmppodcast.com.au so we can give you a sneak peek of our next guest. Until next time, I'm Mark Silvera, and you've been listening to Business Made Personal.